Amen. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Uh, good morning. My name is Parker Richardson, and I serve as our campus pastor at our Carville location. I just want to welcome Carville. Uh, thanks for tuning in this morning. I'll be there next service. And uh, welcome our church at home campus. Uh, we're so glad that you're tuning in with us. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 5. And as you turn there, uh, let me catch you up on where, we're, where we've been, where we're going. Uh, we're actually going to end chapter 5 today, and then um, we will move into um, Easter season coming up right around the corner, and uh, we will eventually work our way through chapter 6 and chapter 7. Um, but if you are new to us, <clears throat> new to our church, visiting with us this morning, uh, we're still glad that you joined us. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verse by verse, just a verse at a time, and it's been so good. And uh, if you are just joining us, let me catch you up, uh, because this is by far, uh, I believe, the most incredible sermon ever recorded, and uh, we've been faithfully walking through it, and I don't want you to come in a little bit lost. Um, Jesus starts this sermon in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5, talking about who believers are. Uh, this sermon was preached to believers in Christ, and he starts with, this is who we are, that we're poor in spirit, right? That we realize that spiritually we bring nothing to the table, that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. And this is our heart's attitude as a believer, uh, that we mourn over our sin. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by the gospel, right? That we mourn over our sin, that we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not our own, that we need a righteousness apart from ourselves, that we hunger and thirst for this righteousness, uh, that we receive it in Christ. Um, he starts here, and the reason he does that, and let me just say this, one of the things that we've been talking about regularly is this isn't just how you felt uh, the day or the night that you got saved. Um, this is how we stay as believers, that we stay poor in spirit, that we realize, as John 15 says, that apart from him, we can do nothing. So like branches who ab abide in the vine, we abide in Christ. We remain poor in spirit. This is how we are fruitful. As John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, he says, um, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, that we stay broken, we stay poor in spirit. We recognize our need for Christ on a daily basis, that we continue to mourn over our sin, that we continue to hunger and thirst for more of God's righteousness in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in this community. So he starts this sermon with, this is who my people are. They're poor in spirit. They mourn. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're uh, meek, right? We realize because of this free gift of God's righteousness that it humbles us, that we've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And then he moves into, this is what my people do. This is who they are and this is how they live. He moves into, in verses 13 through 16, that we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. And we shine God's light as we live our lives in this world. And not like we're the true light. It's, it's similar to John 1 where he talks about John the Baptist um, bore witness about the true light, but John wasn't the true light. That we realize that the only light in us is the light of Christ. But as we live our lives, we shine this light in us. And then when people see our good deeds, they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven that we proclaim the gospel and we are the means by which through our proclamation of the gospel and through the way that we live our lives, um, that we produce, we're the salt of the earth, that we produce more hunger and more thirst for God through our proclamation of the gospel, through the way that we love and serve one another. And then Jesus addresses probably what was the main question of the day is, is this new kingdom? Is this new way? Is this apart from the Old Testament? Do we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and those kind of things? And Jesus says, no that this isn't a new way. In fact, I'm going to fulfill the Old Testament. 
I'm going to rightly interpret the Old Testament to you. And we've been walking through the last few weeks, Jesus has taken these six things, and these six things aren't an exhaustive list, it's not like the whole summary of the Old Testament, but Jesus has been taking these six kind of common practices, these common teachings of the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis, and he has said, you have heard it said, essentially you've heard it taught, notice he doesn't say it is written, he says you've heard it said, this is how it's been taught, but I say... And what's so fascinating about the sermon and what's so um, incredible about this text is the word of God himself comes down to earth and rightfully interprets the word of God for the people of God. And Jesus comes down and he starts to give us the rightful and the correct interpretation of the law for us. And he takes these six different things because the Pharisees and the scribes had reduced following Jesus or following God to outward external righteousness. They were totally content with the fact that they hadn't murdered anyone, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 you've missed the entire heart of the law. The, the beauty of heaven, the beauty of the kingdom, what we, look, what we most look forward to from heaven or in heaven apart from Christ is not just that we're not gonna kill each other, right? Is that there's no envy, there's no murder, there's no strife, there's no jealousy, there's no wrath in our hearts, right? He gets us back to the, the original, the right, the intent, interpretation of the law, the law's intent. And then he moves into adultery and the Pharisees were totally content. Hey, you are obedient to God's law if you don't externally cheat, right? And Jesus is like, no, you've missed it. I'm after your heart. This was his critique with the Pharisees over and over again. You honor me with your lips, but what? Your hearts are far from me, right? You are whitewashed tombs. You look really clean and great on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. You've missed the heart. And they were totally content. Hey, I haven't externally cheated. And Jesus says, but you're emotionally and spiritually cheating over and over again through your lust. And that's what I'm after. That's what the kingdom is like. That it's not just that we don't commit adultery externally, is that we don't do it emotionally, spiritually with one another. So he moves into divorce. He moves into oaths. And now we're going to look at the last two this morning. So if you've got your Bible, hopefully by now, you're in Matthew chapter five, and I would invite you, invite our Carville campus, if you'll stand, we are going to read uh, verses 38 through 48 this morning, and then uh, I'll pray for us. Uh, this is Matthew 5, 38 through 48. It says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes, this, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we gather around your word, um, God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. Um, Father, your Holy Spirit wrote this word, um, and your Holy Spirit is in us. Uh, the word of God is in front of us, and the spirit of God is inside of us. 
um, if we're in Christ. So God, I pray um, that that would be a recipe for um, hearts to change. God, I want so bad um, for enemies to be made friends this morning. Um, God, for us to be people marked by love, for hearts to change towards one another because our hearts have been changed towards you. But God, I can't produce any of that. So I invite you to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read uh, an article a week ago uh, about an incident that happened a few weeks ago in another state that doesn't need to be named because uh, our state could have a story just like this. Probably does. I just haven't read it yet. Um, but long story short, there was two drivers and one of the drivers cut another driver off in traffic in a major city downtown in another state. Um, this action turned into um, lots of cursing between the two cars as they were driving, which eventually um, compounded into a high-speed chase, which eventually compounded into almost getting in a car accident and wrecking, which eventually compounded into um, putting hands on one another and choking and assault and smashing of a window and theft and all of those kind of things. And this was between two pedestrians, like, like no other law enforcement involved until after the fact. And what's interesting about the article was at the very end of the article, um, one of the drivers was quoted as saying, if I had known that my response to being cut off in traffic would lead to all of this, I would have just let them cut me off and go about my day. And why do I tell you that story? Because so many of us, that's probably a snippet of where we find ourselves in our lives and our relationships. If I had known that the way I responded to that person in that relationship, that message, that incident at family Thanksgiving, if I had known that the way I responded in that moment would have led to all of this, if I would have responded with more evil, that this would happen, then I would have responded a lot differently. And I bring that up because this morning, as we just read, we're going to talk about um, what does it mean to love our enemies? What does it look like to love those um, who hurt us, who are malicious towards us, who revile us, who slander us? And some of you in here are like, okay, Parker, like, come on, love our enemies I'm a Christian, right? I don't have any enemies, right? God is love. I love everybody, right? It's easy to love everybody generally, isn't it? You know, God is love. I love every, I don't have any enemies. But secretly, we all have people that we can't stand, that we don't like, and we secretly hope that they fail in life, right? It's so true, isn't it? I don't have any enemies out there, but we run into people all the time that we don't like, that are mean to us, that revile us, that say things about us. Um, it was, some of you young folks won't remember this. Uh, do you remember the, the um, what's it called? The comics in the, in the newspapers with Charlie Brown and Lucy and all those. Uh, Charles Schultz, I believe, was the author of those. And in one of those comics, uh, Lucy ends up saying, I love the world, but I hate people, right? And some of you are like, there's never been a more accurate statement of how I live my life right there. I love everybody generally, but I can't stand certain individuals. Uh, the word enemy there in the Greek, just if you want to know what Jesus is talking about here, is anyone who would do harm to you, anyone who would um, oppose you, resist you, slander you, anyone that is looking to inflict damage upon you. Um, we can go from friends to enemies really quickly, can't we? Um, so we need to know, how are we called? What's the kingdom way to interact with people um, that we don't like? to interact with people that slander us. Uh, we're going to receive, we live in a broken world, broken relationships, right? We're gonna receive dishonesty, slander, gossip, people making fun of us. 
And that's just inside the church, right? That's just in this room. That's not even including all of the promises in God's word that Jesus talks about that are going to come from outside the church to persecute us, to slander us, to revile us, all of those kind of things. So we need to know how we are supposed to respond. So let's begin, shall we? If you'll look at verse eight, Jesus says that, or verse 38 of Matthew five, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And notice he says it again. You've heard that it was said. He's critiquing the scribes and the Pharisees teaching. You've heard that it was taught this way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And here's what's interesting about this. Um, this phrase, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, this is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This was a very common teaching. The problem, however, is that this principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was civic law. This principle was given to the courts. It was given to the judges in Israel, and they were meant to administer righteous judgment. When there was an incident, when there was betrayal, when there was conflict, when there was slander, God in his infinite wisdom gave Israel judges and courts and they were supposed to administer this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why did God do it that way? Because think about it. What happens when someone hits you in the eye? What happens when someone knocks out your tooth? Do you stop and go, okay, which one was that? Was it the third one from the middle? Was it a molar? All right, sir, if you'll please open your mouth and turn you have removed one of my molars, now it's my turn to remove one. No, right? What happens when someone hits you in the eye? You go for the nose, you grab the nearest, you know, hard object around you to start swinging, and then they grab something, and then they get their friends, and you get their friends, and eventually you've got the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? You've got the Corleones and the Barzinis, Right? This is what happens when we take this provision that was given to the courts in Israel and we take matters into our own hands. Um, I have an older brother and he and I are very close in age and uh, we grew up playing sports against each other. Um, as children and teenagers, we grew up wrestling against each other all the time and uh, it was always playful and innocent until you've got your brother in a grip and suddenly your, your, you know, your hand slips and your elbow just kind of goes and grazes the face, right? And then friends become enemies in an instant. Or, you know, he would accidentally, I would accidentally push a little too hard. He would fall off the bed and my parents would hear the thud. And then they would just hear, you know, me screaming and running to their safety. And what's interesting about those situations is my brother never once, after he caught up and I'm there under the safety of my parents, he never called out for righteous judgment, did he? No, it was just give me 20 seconds with him, mom and dad, please, right? Like, just, just give me a moment with him, right? It was like, I'm going to be an only child in a few minutes, right? Like, that's what he was going after. When we take these provisions that God has given us and we put them into our own hands, we aren't just, are we? We aren't righteous. We don't know what true justice looks like. We aren't righteous in our own hearts, especially when we're offended, um, Paul in Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin, right? He knows that we have this propensity to take things way too far. Uh, Proverbs talks about how the letting out of anger is like the letting out of water in a dam, right? Like once you open it, there's no closing it, right? That it just flows out of us. So there's a reason that God set it up this way. Um, think about it. When somebody, men in the room, 
When your wife comes home and says that there was another lady that said something about her and she's furious and she's fuming, what is your counsel to her? Is it, okay, was it mildly offensive? Was it moderately offensive? Now let's think of something that was equally offensive to her and then let's, you know, blast that out on the internet. No, right? Parents, when somebody says something about your child or somebody does something to your child, what's the response? Hmm, let's see what they did and let's assess it accurately and then let's go and do the same thing. No, you turn into Batman, right? I'm vengeance. Like you just take off and start doing things. And this is why God set it up this way. Um, It was actually a provision in the law that was meant to prevent vengeance and to prevent evil and to prevent excessive retaliation. The problem is the Pharisees had taken this law that was meant to prevent evil and they were using it to justify personal revenge, personal vendetta. That's what the word revenge means, right? To return vengeance to someone. They had taken this law that God had given, this provision in the Old Testament used to protect people from excess violence and they were using it to justify their own personal revenge. They had taken a provision that was given to the courts and they were applying it to personal relationships, to one-on-one life. And they were totally missing it. In fact, we see this in Matthew 19. Um, We mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about divorce, but in Matthew 19, the um, scribes and the Pharisees come to test Jesus and they're talking about divorce. And um, in those days, if you um, think back to Old Testament life, um, women could not divorce men at all. Uh, It just wasn't a part of the way culture was back then. You could not divorce a man if you were a woman. Uh, But men were divorcing women for multiple different reasons and multiple different things. And because of that, um, if you think about kind of the family structure of the first century as well, you've got these women who were at home and they kept house. Women didn't have careers like they do now and all those things. It's a great thing. We celebrate that in our culture, but they didn't have careers back then. Um, They kept the house and they kept the kids and the husband had the money, had the career and all those kind of things. And if a man were to divorce his wife, then she would be out of luck, right? No means to make money, no means to protect the children. And the only thing she did wrong was take her husband at his word. So God, knowing that, gave a provision in Deuteronomy 24 that if a man was going to divorce his wife, that he was going to give her a certificate of divorce, right? And this was a provision meant to protect the family. And what did the scribes and the Pharisees do? They used it as leverage. They used it as a me. Ah, God wants us. God is allowing us to divorce people. Here's a provision God's given us. Moses just said, we write a certificate. And then they started writing certificates left and right. Because the law said if there was any indecency, which really meant unfaithfulness, but the scribes and the Pharisees reduced that word down and just, oh, you know, you burned dinner, that's indecent, here's your certificate, right? I got older, you got older, she's younger, here's your certificate, right? They took a provision in the law that was meant to protect, that was meant to care for women and children and families, that was meant to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And in Matthew 19, that's what Jesus keeps pushing them back to. And he says, Moses gave you that provision because your hearts were hard and you were looking for reasons to leave. But they took a provision that was meant to protect and they were using it to cause more harm. It's the same thing we see right here. There's a provision in the law to protect people from evil, from returning evil with more evil, from compounding evil and slander and gossip and pain. And they were using it to justify their own personal revenge. And this is what Jesus is getting at. So he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it taught this way. Verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't resist. 
Now, let me give you some disclaimers here as we walk into this. You've heard us read already this morning. He's going to talk about turning the other cheek when you've been hit and those kind of things. I do need to give you some disclaimers here. When Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, he's not talking about don't resist the devil. I think that's the most obvious one, but it needs to be said. Let's just say it. Um, Paul, Peter, and James in at least one of their epistles all tell us to resist the devil. All right, that is a good thing. So he's not saying don't resist the devil. He's also not saying to stay in an abusive relationship. And we'll talk about that as we go through here. Jesus is not advocating that you need to not resist if someone is regularly hitting you, okay? I just need to make that clear, make it obvious, bring it to the surface that Jesus is not advocating that if you are currently being abused to stay in that. Don't allow someone to use the scripture to manipulate you to stay in a relationship like that because that's not what Jesus is saying. He is also not advocating against self-defense, just want to make that clear as well. We'll talk about what Jesus is doing here and what he's mentioning and referring to. Um, but there's a provision in Exodus 22 about self-defense. He's not talking about, hey, if, if you're being attacked in your home and those kind of things that you have to just don't resist, just take it. He's not saying those things. We have to be careful not to take the exceptions and make them the rule in this scenario. What Jesus is talking about, the context of this is common everyday evil, relational evil that is done towards us and that we do to one another. That's the context that he's talking about. Being gossiped against, slandered against, someone doing evil, someone speaking evil to you, someone doing evil to you, not regularly in an abusive relationship, but just in everyday life. And here's also what I want you to see. Jesus called it evil. And we don't need to fly by that. He's not asking you to pretend that what that person has done to you before, what your family member said, um, I don't know who your enemy is. It could be someone on your street, it could be someone online, it could be someone that shares the same last name as you. Could be an in-law, could be the person that lays in the bed next to you at night. I don't know who your enemy is when you walked in here this morning. But Jesus is not saying that you have to pretend that what has been done to you, what has been said to you is not evil. He calls it evil. You don't have to call it anything less than that. But I want you to see that. But as we walk through this, Jesus is going to give us, as he says, don't resist the one who is evil. Jesus is going to give us these four illustrations, these four scenarios, and he's going to use hyperbole. And if you haven't been to grammar class in a while, uh, welcome. Uh, hyperbole is excessive language to communicate a point. And we know Jesus is going to use hyperbole because he's already used it in the sermon. When he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus didn't mean for those to be interpreted literally. He didn't literally mean for you to cut off your hand and tear out your eye. Otherwise, every time we lusted, if, if that was the case, men and women would have walked in here this morning with no, like my wife would have just led me in here this morning without any eyes or hands, right? He didn't mean for it to be, it's hyperbole. And here's what I want you to see. He's going to do that in these four scenarios. So let's walk through them one at a time. He says this in verse 39, uh, the end of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what is Jesus is getting at? Well, statistically, 85 to 90 percent of people are right handed. So for me as a right handed man to slap you in your right cheek means that I have to go backhanded, Right. So he wasn't talking about this big abusive relationship. Um, he was talking about, although it is physically painful, um, this was a means in the first century of publicly shaming someone, of embarrassing someone, 
of calling them out, of ridiculing them in public, exposing them to public humiliation. This is what Jesus is referring to, this kind of backhanded public slap. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is if someone reviles you, someone embarrasses you, it doesn't have to be with a physical slap, it could be online, it could be in front of your family, in front of your friends, at work when someone calls you out, that the response, the kingdom response, is that we don't respond with evil, that we don't retaliate with more evil. When someone gossips towards us, we don't gossip back towards them. When someone slanders us, we don't slander them. When we're around a group of people and somebody makes fun of us to kind of drop us down a peg so that they look better, we don't play the same game with them in the kingdom. That's not how we respond. When someone deceives, we don't deceive back. When someone curses, we don't curse back. The kingdom response is not to add evil to the evil that's been done. And then verse 40 says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, this is one that we don't understand. Um, what Jesus is referring to here, and this is interesting. If you do some reading in Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 24, the cloak was very interesting. And Jesus says that if someone is coming after you via the court system and they're suing you and they want your tunic, um, be willing to give them your cloak as well. And the cloak is so interesting because there's lots of provisions in the Old Testament where if I made a pledge with you, if I made a deal with you, if I had to give payment to you for some damages and I gave you my cloak, the, in the Old Testament, you were instructed to give that back to me before the sun went down. And it was a provision for God for his people because it got cold at night and you needed a cloak. And we know this is hyperbole because all commentators have said no Jew would actually give away their tunic and their cloak and essentially walk around Israel in their underwear. Like it just wouldn't happen. This was hyperbole. It was meant for Jesus. What he was saying here is that if someone is coming after your possessions in an evil way, if someone is trying to, to take from you, be willing to part with what's valuable to you. This is the way of the kingdom is we don't respond with evil. We don't retaliate and try to take their things. Oh, you wanna take this? All right, we're going to war. I'm coming after your house and your stuff and your belongings, your possessions, your reputation. You try to take mine, you try to knock mine down, I'm coming after you. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how we respond. In fact, in those moments, we refrain and thereby opening, our, opening ourselves up, metaphorically turning the cheek to receive more, to part with more. That in those moments when people of God, when us, the, those of us in here that claim to follow Jesus, that when evil is done to us, when someone is coming after our reputation, our things, our belongings, that we are willing to part with things that are valuable to us. This is what he's going after. Verse 41, it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now this was a Roman provision in the law. This was a Roman law. And if you remember the first century that Jesus was living in, um, Israel was essentially under Rome. Rome was the world power of the day. And Rome made the laws, Rome enforced the laws. They gave the scribes and the Pharisees kind of authority to handle religious things and spiritual things, but Rome handled the law. In fact, you notice that when the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, who did they have to go to to get permission? Rome, right? A Roman governor had to approve of the execution. So Rome was in charge and there was a Roman law that a Roman soldier could ask a Jewish person to take their things and carry their belongings with them a Roman mile, which essentially meant whenever, as far as they wanted. So Jesus is saying here, using hyperbole, that if, if someone, if, if a Roman soldier, if someone comes and forces you to do something, forces you to serve them, 
forces you to carry their things, in, in that moment, our response is not to swing at them. It's not to curse at them. It's not to yell at them. It's not to repay evil with evil. It's to be helpful. And in those moments, that when somebody comes and says, hey, they manipulate you into helping you. Anybody ever been in that situation? Right? If you have a pickup truck, you've been in that situation. Right? <laughs> Somebody manipulates you into helping them. That in those moments, you don't call them out. You don't say, Why, you know, why'd you make me do this? You totally tricked me into helping you. You're there. And the kingdom response is to be helpful. Hey, you need me to do this? Even though I don't want to be here, right? I'm going to be helpful. I'm not going to respond with evil. I'm not going to deceive you back. I'm not going to act like you owe me. I'm not going to manipulate you or make you feel guilty. I'm going to be helpful. That's the kingdom response. And then he says this in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And this is all throughout the Old Testament law. God has so many provisions in the Old Testament that his people would be a generous people. I mean, his plan was that Israel would be the means by which God blesses the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 15, 7 through 11 is all about how God's people would be a generous people. Why? Because he's their God and he's going to provide for them and take care of them. He's going to protect them. So they're free to be generous. And the same is true for us. Same is true for us. And let me just say this once again, this is not God commanding us to open ourselves up to being taken advantage of, right? He still wants you to give with discernment and wisdom and generosity and compassion and all those things. But he's not saying open yourselves up and every time somebody gives to you, you have to, you can't refuse, right? He's using excessive language to make a point that we don't respond in those moments when someone is deceiving from us or taking from us with more evil. That we open ourselves up to give generously. So don't take this literally. It would be like if somebody you know is suicidal and they come and they ask for their pills, right? You, oh, well, Jesus told me, you know, don't refuse the one. Give to the one who asks, right? No, that's not what he means. He's talking about when evil is done to us, when someone is attacking us, when someone is taking from us, when someone's manipulating us, the response is that we open ourselves up. We don't respond with evil. We don't retaliate. We don't respond with vengeance. That we're generous. It's very um, akin to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see this on the screen. The writer of Hebrews says this about um, the Jews. He says, uh, these, these Messianic Jews, these Jews that believed in Jesus, he says this, but recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, so after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and here's what he says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is the kingdom response. That when we're attacked, when we're taken advantage of, when we're gossiped against, when we're slandered, that we don't respond with evil, that we can joyfully accept those realities. Why? Because we have a better possession, that we don't fight tooth and nail and respond and argue and get online and slander back for possessions or for our reputation or for worldly things. We have a better possession than anything that we can fight someone over in this world. So we respond the way the kingdom responds, the way our king responds. We respond with meekness, without adding to evil, with generous, with being helpful, those things. Why? Because we have a better possession. 
than anything that we could fight someone for in this world. We have a better possession. Now, Jesus is going to take things a step further. Um, as if just not retaliating was enough, right? I'm good. Just stop there. Like, that's all I need for the rest of my life. Like, just to learn how to not respond to evil with more evil. That's enough. Jesus says the kingdom is different. We're taking it even further. And Jesus will take it a step further. And he's going to show us that the way of the kingdom, and he'll even say in a few verses, the way of the Father and the way of himself is not just refraining from doing evil, but love. That the intent of the law, the original intent of the law, the way of the kingdom, the way of God's people is that they would be marked by love, even in the face of evil, even in the face of opposition. This is what Jesus is going to get to. Look at verse 43. He says this, you have heard that it was said or you've heard that it was taught. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now we're going to take those two things one at a time. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we'll start with you shall love your neighbor. Notice that the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis of the day, they conveniently left off the phrase as yourself, right? That got thrown out in the wash. Over the years, we just decided not to do that. It's like, all right, God, you want me to love my, yeah, I, I love everybody generally, but love them as much as I love myself? Come on, no, nah. surely he didn't mean that, right? Surely he didn't mean that. We love ourselves, we forgive ourselves, we show grace to ourselves, we're patient with ourselves, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but do that to other people? Now, come, surely that's not what God meant, right? I, I, yeah, I love everybody, but I'm not going to go that far. And this was the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And this is the attitude of all of us. There is way more Pharisee in me than I want to admit. And there's way more Pharisee in you than I think you would want to admit. We are all proponents of grace when we're the one who offended somebody, Right? When I'm in the wrong, I'm a huge preacher and proponent of grace. I love grace until I'm the one who's offended, right? We are all grace theologians until someone hurts us, until someone slanders us, until someone talks back to us or lies to us or manipulates us or deceives us. And there's way more Pharisee in us than we want to admit, right? Love them as much as I love myself. Be as patient with them as, as patient I am with myself. Forgive them as much as I forgive myself. We want grace for me, but not for thee, right? My theology in my sin is grace for me, punishment for them, right? Love for me, judgment for them, right? Kindness towards me, evil towards them. There is way more Pharisee in us than we want to admit. And just like the Pharisees, I would venture to say in our own theology, we might not write it on paper, but we would say, yeah, let's take out the as yourself. Let me just generally love my neighbors, right? And this is what Jesus is getting at. He says, um, the law, the intent of the law was that they were to love their neighbor as themselves. And then he says this, he says, and hate your enemy. This was the teaching. You've heard it said, you've heard it taught. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, let me be clear. Hate your enemy is nowhere in the Old Testament. This was essentially what the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis added by implication. They took the Old Testament law that says, love your neighbor 
Be kind to your neighbor. And they said, okay, if, if God wants us to love our neighbors, it must be implied that we're allowed to hate our enemies. <laughs> let me just say this. This is a good Bible interpretation tool. Do not develop a theology about something based on what you think the Bible implies. Okay? Just don't do it. And this is what has happened. Let me show you in the law. This is Leviticus 19. It says this. You shall not hate your brother in heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's that phrase that conveniently disappeared, right? And then he says, for I am the Lord. So the scribes and the Pharisees said, okay, if he's told us that we're not supposed to hate our, our brothers and our neighbors, that we're not supposed to take vengeance on them, then by implication, that means we are supposed to hate our enemies. And we are supposed to take vengeance against our enemies. And this is nowhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere to be found. Leviticus, a few verses later, in verse 33, this is actually how Jesus, or how Yahweh, God, calls his people to treat the foreigner and the enemy. He says this, if you meet uh, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. More provisions. Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving, it, leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Proverbs 25. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. When you look at the span of the Old Testament, our command, God's people's command to love their enemies isn't much different. The love we're supposed to show for our enemies isn't much different than the love we're supposed to show to our own people, to our friends, to our neighbors. It's not much different. It's pretty close to the same with a few exceptions. And this is why, side note, um, later on in Luke chapter 10, you've got this lawyer who knows the law shows up to Jesus and he's trying to test him. And he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at the guy and says, well, what does the law say? And he says, he quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? How, like, if you had to defend your faith before God using only Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how would you do? <laughs> how would I, I, yeah, I don't know. But this guy knows the law. It shows he doesn't have a theology problem. He has a heart problem. He quotes, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Go and do this, and you'll live. So Jesus says, yeah, go and do that perfectly all the time. Go love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of the time, perfectly, and go love your neighbor as much as you love yourself perfectly all the time. And then you'll enter, you'll inherit eternal life. And the guy still thinks he can do it. Still thinks he can. And it says, desiring to justify himself to prove himself right. He says, well, who's my neighbor? Like, tell me who this is, because I really think I've done this. And what does Jesus say? He tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan to answer that one question, who is my neighbor? And in the end of it, what does Jesus essentially say your neighbor is? Your neighbor is the one who you would call your enemy in the world. Your neighbor is anyone who is made in the image of God, who you have the opportunity to love and to serve and to help and to be compassionate to and to be kind to. That's who your neighbor is. That's what Jesus is calling us to see. And the Pharisees had missed it entirely. 
they were using these provisions in the law that were meant to protect people, that were meant to prevent God's people from responding with vengeance and with evil, and they were using it to justify their own prejudice and their own biases and their own evil in their hearts. They were using God's law to further divide, to seek personal revenge and vengeance. And Jesus says, this is not the way of the kingdom. He says this in verse um, 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes it home. It's not just that we don't retaliate when someone does evil to us, but it's that we respond with love. He's not painting this picture of somebody who's weak and they're being attacked, they're being reviled, and he just, you just have to stay there as a weak person and keep taking it. No, he's actually depicting someone who has gospel strength. That when someone is reviling you, slandering you, making fun of you, attacking you, that you have the strength, not just to refrain, but to respond with love. That's what he's depicting. That when we're injured, we refuse to, to satisfy our own desires to get even, and we think, okay, what's best for this person? What's the highest good for this person? Let me respond that way. God has not called us to hate one another. Um, Booker T. Washington, in his biography, Up From Slavery, he says this. He says, I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. That there's something that happens in us when we hate another person, when we respond with vengeance and we respond with evil that degrades our own souls. It's not good for our own souls. There's something in us that, that grows, this wickedness in us, this um, cancer, this toxic thing in us. Martin Luther King talked about this. Martin Luther King actually preached a sermon on this very passage, and this is what he says. I want to give you the quote. He says this, hate multiplies hate. It is just as injurious to the hater as it is to the hated. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Listen to this sentence. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. That scripture calls us as the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. In Romans, God says, vengeance is mine. That we aren't supposed to take revenge, vengeance, evil into our own hands. God is sovereign over those things. That his people, that you and I, as a part of the kingdom, we're called to respond with love. And one of the ways that we show this love is we pray for our enemies. In fact, let me just say this. One of the ways that this love grows in us is that we pray for our enemies, right? If you just have a spark of love in you, enough to pray for your enemies, love will create more, or prayer will create more love for your enemy. It will. It is almost impossible to continue and regularly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. It is virtually impossible. And some of you in here this morning, that might be where you need to start. Hey, I'm just going to start praying for this person. Because it is virtually impossible to regularly um, appeal to the Lord for someone in prayer and still hate them at the same time. It's not just a way that we express love for our enemies, but it's the means by which God creates more love in our enemies or for us towards our enemies. Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, this is the supreme command 
Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. It's the means by which God creates more love in us for our enemies. And maybe this morning, if you're like, Parker, like, I just can't get on board with this. You don't know what they did. You're right, I don't. And God's not asking you to call it anything less than evil. But he is calling you to love. He's calling you not to respond with more evil. And maybe this morning you just need to start with praying for them. Because it's really difficult to hate somebody that you're praying for regularly. The more you love, the more you'll pray. And the more you pray, the more you'll love. And maybe that's where you need to start. But look what Jesus says next. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then here's what I want you to see in verse 45. This is something that could trip you up. So everybody, make sure you're looking at your Bible, looking on the screens. If you don't have your Bible, don't stress. But look at what he says. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And I don't want you to get tripped up by that. He's not saying love your enemies and pray for those people so that you'll earn sonship with God. Love your enemies enough and then God will say, all right, you've done enough. Now you're my son so that you will become my sons. That's not what he's saying. And I can show you from the scriptures that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's already talked about in this same sermon that we are already sons of God if you're in Christ. Look at Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Right? Jesus was preaching this sermon to believers. He says, your father is all, he's already your father in heaven. He doesn't say, let your light shine, and if your works are good enough, God will become your father in heaven. No. He is already your father. So he's not saying, love your enemies and pray for them, and then you'll become one of God's sons. Then you've earned it. No. Matthew 7, we'll get to this eventually in verse 11. He says this, if you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There is so much gospel in this verse, it's not even funny. Look at this verse. Jesus calls us evil, and he says God's our Father in heaven at the same time. Same verse. And that's the gospel, that you and I who are evil can call the God of the universe our Father in heaven. That's the gospel through what Jesus Christ has done. So he's not saying, hey, in here this morning, you have to love your enemies and pray for them and then God will deem you worthy for salvation. No. He's, what he's saying here when he says, so that you will be sons, so that you'll reflect, so that you'll live like sons, so that you'll exhibit the qualities of your father in heaven. This is how you represent and reflect your father in heaven. This is how you be, not become, but this is how you live like and you, you exist like your father in heaven. You love your enemies and you pray for them. God is calling us to love like him and not like men. This is what he's calling us to. That you and I, if we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, we are called to love like Jesus and not like the world and not like men. This is what he's getting at. And he shows us that this is actually what God the Father does for us every single day. Second half of verse 45, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This morning in Memphis, Tennessee, or wherever you're watching from, online in Carrieville, God made the sun rise on his sons and daughters and on his enemies. He is that kind and he is that good. Through God's common grace, he allows all of us, those that slander him, those that curse him, those that um, actively spend their lives trying to, to deceive people away from him, God gives them breath in their lungs. 
He makes the sun rise and he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, the righteous in Christ and the unrighteous. That God loves his enemies. It's, it's part of who he is. He can't not do it. That God loves his enemies. And you and I, we are called to reflect the love of our father. We will be, we will live as, we will exist as sons of our father, sons and daughters, if we do this, if we respond like this. It's not so that we will be saved. It's not to earn your salvation. It's because you've been saved. This is why we live this way. This is why we respond with love. This is why we pray for our enemies, not to, so that God will save us, but because he already has. Do you see the difference? This is what Jesus is getting at. And then he gives us another example in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And I love this. He says, what more are you doing if you just love people who love you? You're loving like the world. The unbelieving tax collectors and the unbelieving Gentiles, you're doing no more than they do. And I love what he's getting at here is if you think about it, if all we do is if we love the people who love us, if we only take care of the people who take care of us, if we're only kind to the people who are kind to us, we really only love ourselves. It's just another form of self-love, right? If I only look after the people that look after me, then it's really just because I love me. And I love you for what you do for me. And Jesus is saying, that's the way the world operates. Unbelievers do that. Tax collectors, Gentiles do that. What more are you doing than they? You're essentially just loving yourself. Even they love their friends and hate their enemies. And he's calling out the scribes and the Pharisees teaching and their interpretation of the law. He's like, how's that any different than the world? This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way that God has loved us. And it's essentially just a love for self. And then he says this in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that should be deflating. It's going to take a perfect love to do this, right? It is. Um, as Pete Pranica, if you guys watch the Grizzlies, um, if he were here, he would say, hammer, nail, coffin, this baby is over, right? There's no way that we can do this. I don't have that kind of love in me. I, I can't produce, this love is not natural to me. When someone is slandering me, when someone is yelling at me, when someone is cursing me, when someone's deceiving me, manipulating me, to respond in a way that doesn't just refrain from adding more evil to the situation, but responds with love and what's best for my brother or sister in Christ, I can't produce that. I don't have that love in me. That love is not natural to me and that love is not natural to you. You can't produce this heart in you and you can't produce this love in you. And that's the good news of the gospel is that you and I, we were enemies. And the source, the only way that you and I will ever have love for our enemies is if we first experience being loved as an enemy. And that's the good news of the gospel. If you came in here this morning and you thought, okay, man, here's what I gotta do. I just gotta go out and I gotta love my enemies. I gotta love that person that I don't wanna love. I gotta send that message. I gotta make that phone call. And then God will love me. You've missed the point. You've missed the point. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about how this sick tree can't produce good fruit. The goal is not for you to go out and in your own strength and left to your own devices to try to produce good fruit. No, Jesus says if you make the tree good, then the fruit will be good. 
The gospel renovates the inside of our lives. The, the gospel renovates our hearts first and then it changes our behavior. And before you will ever be able to go and love your enemy, you have to first experience being loved as an enemy. Because in our sin, you and I, we are enemies of God. It's all over scripture. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to love his enemies. Romans 5, verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God saved you and I, if you're in Christ, God has saved you while you were his enemy. You didn't make a move toward God. You didn't befriend God and then he saved you. No, he saved you. He befriended you. He loved you while you were an enemy. And how did he do it? He did it through not responding with evil when he was reviled. Through not responding with slander when he was slandered. Through not responding with cursing when he was cursed. 1 Peter chapter 2 for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, and now you've returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your souls. That he was cast out as an enemy so that enemies of God could be brought in and be made friends. And that's the goodness of the gospel. That if you walked in here this morning, an enemy of God in your sin, you can leave a friend. If you walked in here this morning spiritually unhealthy, you can leave healthy. Jesus said, I did not come to call those who think they are healthy. I came to call those who know that they're sick. Didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. And that's the goodness of the gospel. And as we were slandering him and reviling him, he was praying for us. If you remember on the cross, Luke 23 talks about, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That he was going to the Father and praying for us. And the interesting thing about that verse, without spending a lot of time on it, is it says, and Jesus said, that word said in the Greek um, is the imperfect tense. It's actually a continuous action in the past. So it, it essentially means Jesus repeatedly was saying, as another nail went in his hand, Father, forgive them. As a crown of thorns went on his head, Father, forgive them. As his beard was being ripped out, Father, forgive them. That as we were being evil towards the Savior of the world, he was praying to the Father for us. As we were calling down man's evil on him, he was praying down heaven's blessings on us. He has loved us as enemies. And the only way you will ever get the strength, get the grace to love your enemy, to be kind to your enemy, is if you first experience being loved as an enemy. What's so interesting about the 12 is that Jesus called Simon, the zealot, someone who wanted to overthrow the government, and he called Matthew, someone who betrayed the Jews to work for the government. In the 12, you've got someone who wants to overthrow the government and someone who works for the government, and they can be made friends. The gospel is turning enemies into friends this morning, and it's done it for them, and it can do that for you. It sure can. Um, I just finished this book. I've been trying to read more missionary biographies. And if you've never read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, I would encourage you to read it. 
Um, Corey Ten Boom was um, in her 50s. Um, she lived in Holland, uh, Harlem, Holland. Um, she owned a watch shop with her father, and World War II happened, the Holocaust happened, and Corey Ten Boom was not a Jew. Um, she was living in Holland, and she ended up um, creating a room in their house that was above their watch shop to hide Jews from the Nazis in World War II. And it is believed hundreds, almost, uh, up to what a lot of people believe, almost 800 Jews were saved because Corey and her family, her sister Betsy and her father were saving these Jews from the concentration camps. They would eventually get caught, and because of what they were doing, they would get sent to a concentration camp. So you've got this Dutch lady, she's in her 50s from Holland, and her sister and her father in a concentration camp for, for helping and hiding Jews. And she would be in there for years. Um, in fact, her father would not make it out. And a few weeks before she would make it out of the concentration camp and be spared by God's grace, her sister would not make it out. And after World War II ends, She's a believer. It's an incredible story. I really encourage you to read it. Um, Corey Ten Boom starts traveling um, U.S., all throughout Europe, and preaching and sharing her testimony and talking about the gospel. And she, at the end of the book, she's, she's at a church in Germany, and she preaches about forgiveness. And after the sermon is over, um, she sees this man come down front and she recognizes that it's one of the soldiers who stood guard at the showers and who would mock the women as they went into shower in Ravensbrück, the concentration camp that she was in. And she writes this, and I just want to read it to you. Um, she says this, she says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain, blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, and he said, How grateful I am for your message, Frauline. He said, To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. She sees the sin of her own thoughts as she's staring at one of the main people who would persecute her and shame her in a concentration camp. Jesus Christ has died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And I took his hand and the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And I want you to see this, it'll be on the screen. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness anymore than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And that's the goodness of the gospel. We don't have this love in us, but praise be to God, as Romans talks about, that he has poured out, God has poured out his love in us by the Holy Spirit. And when you experience what it's like to be an enemy of God in your sin, doing nothing, 
offering nothing, bringing nothing to the table, spiritually bankrupt and being loved by God as an enemy, then and only then will you and I extend love to our enemies. So if you're an unbeliever in the room, don't wait. You walked in here an enemy in your sin, but you can leave a friend. And for the believers in the room, don't wait. If torture and crucifixion couldn't stop our Savior from praying for us, what's stopping us from praying for our enemies? Is it our pride? Is it our ego? Is it our feelings? Run to the cross and let those things hit the floor this morning. Receive love as an enemy and then go and be free to love your enemies. It's the means by which we will reflect the gospel. We will reflect the love of our Father. Don't wait. I don't know if your enemy is on your street, is online, is in your home. Make that phone call. Send that message. Receive the love as an enemy and give the love to your enemies. If God had this grace for me, I can have this grace for them. If God was kind to me, I can be kind to them. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. God, we're grateful. You are not calling us to do anything that you have not first done for us. God, that as enemies of you in our sin, God, you pursued us and you loved us. We receive that love this morning. God, our only response is to give that love that we cannot produce in and of ourselves to our enemies. In Jesus' name. Amen.